This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where it's still hotter than hell and way more humid. Today on Sunrise, a suicide in Sarasota raises troubling questions about tactics used by cyber cops in the Sunshine State to entice and possibly entrap people in sex stings. Ron DeSantis is sticking to his guns on the suspension of the Broward County Sheriff. A special master who investigated the removal of Scott Israel says the governor was wrong and made unsupported claims in his order, but DeSantis doesn't seem to care. The governor says he will support a bill to take Visit Florida off the legislative hit list and fund them to the tune of about $50 million next year. The Speaker of the Florida House may have other plans. Today on Sunrise, we go one-on-one with Florida Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed. We'll be talking about everything from hemp and wildfire to Donald Trump. We'll also have your daily political calendar and check in on the continuing adventures of Florida man and Florida woman. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Monday, September 30th. A Sarasota man who was looking forward to the birth of his first grandchild has taken his own life after being arrested in an Internet sexting. The fundamental question is whether the tactics used by authorities that drove him to end his own life amounted to illegal solicitation and entrapment. Noah Pransky with Florida Politics reports that 62-year-old Hamid Kishmirian committed suicide last week, less than 24 hours after bonding out on charges relating to his conversations about sex with an undercover deputy who claimed to be a 14-year-old prostitute. Now, the thing is... Kishmirian wasn't looking for a child. He was looking for an escort on an adult website. He clicked on an ad that led him to a cyber cop working for the Sarasota Sheriff's Department. Pransky says they lured the man in with sex talk, and only later did the woman, who was actually the undercover deputy, say she was 14. She even put a man on the phone who said he was her father, and it was okay with him. When the guy showed up, he was arrested, spent two days in jail without being charged or even getting to make a phone call because deputies did not want word to get out that a sting was underway. His adult daughters say their dad was a victim of entrapment, and the deputy was guilty of solicitation to commit prostitution. They believe the Sarasota Sheriff's Department is responsible for the death of their father. And Pransky's story says these bait-and-switch tactics on adult dating sites have become more frequent for law enforcement agencies trying to boost their arrest numbers for sex crimes, even if prosecutions don't always hold up in court. Ron DeSantis is not backing down on the suspension of former Broward County Sheriff Scott Israel, and he's asking members of the state Senate to ignore their own attorney. Israel was removed from office in January after the governor issued an executive order blaming the sheriff for failures made by his deputies when they responded to mass shootings at the Fort Lauderdale Airport and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. Israel asked for a trial by the Florida Senate, and a special master hired by the Senate president has concluded Governor DeSantis did not have the legal authority to suspend the sheriff because he never offered any evidence for the allegations in his executive order. He recommended that Israel be reinstated, but DeSantis is asking senators to ignore their own lawyer and uphold his suspension order. I am so glad the Senate's finally going to vote on this thing. At the end of the day, um, you know, it's up to the senators to make their decision. But I can tell you, you know, that report, I think the, the legal analysis was flawed. But there's no doubt that there was incompetence and neglect of duty. And there's no doubt that Florida law says that that sheriff is responsible for those conduct. So um, I think that the senators will be able to, to separate the wheat from the chaff on that. And I think that they'll do, do the right thing. And here's the thing. You know, we've had hardly any accountability for that. One of the most preventable um, uh, massacres in the history uh, of probably our country. And um, this is an opportunity for accountability. So I think that when they meet in in October to do do it, I think they're going to have a very, very clear uh, choice to make. And uh, I look forward to, to that finally happening. 
There will be a special session in the Senate the week of October 21st when lawmakers will hold a trial of sorts. But this really isn't about justice. It's more about politics. Sheriff Israel is a Democrat. Republicans have a majority. If this vote becomes a partisan issue, quite frankly, he's toast. Speaking of toast, Visit Florida could be cooked. The state's tourism marketing agency took a huge budget cut this year, and lawmakers decided to slap an expiration date on the agency. If the legislature doesn't pass a new law restoring Visit Florida next year, it will be sunsetted or abolished. House Speaker Jose Oliva has been leading the charge to defund and abolish the agency because he doesn't like to see taxpayers' money used to market the private sector. But Governor Ron DeSantis says he'll be supporting a new bill that removes Visit Florida from the official chopping block. Well, it's interesting, um, and I actually, uh, you know, the Speaker and I are very philosophically aligned. I mean, I was not necessarily sold on it coming in, um, but as they rate these things, that's one of the few economic development things that gets rated as being positive. Um, And so, um, you know, my my ideas, you know, I think think we can support it. Whether we do 50, I think that's probably what we'll do, but we're working through all those numbers now, and um, obviously we're going to be working on our budget over the next couple weeks. And you wouldn't ask for more than 50, I gather. Look, I mean, you know, you never know. I mean, we asked for, what, $86 million in my budget last time, I think, and then it got, got whittled down. It was potentially going to be zero. Then we got it to 50. I think the Senate came in at 50 last year in their budget. So that's probably about right. There's legislation to extend that deadline for, you know, uh, abolishing Visit Florida. You, you're supportive of that, I imagine. Well, look, I think that at some point, like, we just need to make a decision on it rather than continuing to have it be hanging on a thread every year. So I think that the Senate is very supportive of it. I think there's a lot of people in the House that are supportive of it. Obviously, um, you know, Jose is, is somebody that um, I think has, has, has legitimate philosophical uh, dis- disagreements with it. But I think we should just work through it and then try to figure out, so here's what we know, and it's not a constant battle every year. State Senator Ed Hooper of Palm Harbor and Representative Mel Ponder of Destin have filed bills to reauthorize Visit Florida for eight years, in effect extending the sunset date for the organization to October 1st, 2028. Next up, a conversation with Nikki Freed. But first, let's pay some bills. This is Sunrise. Florida is a great place to live and do business. Let's keep it that way. By supporting the Florida Competitive Workforce Act, legislators can do the right thing. To remain competitive globally, we must be a welcoming state for everyone to live, work, and play. 11 Fortune 500 companies, 35 major employers, and hundreds of small businesses support the act. And 68% agree it's wrong to discriminate in employment, public housing, and accommodations. Go to floridacompetes.org. Tell your legislator to hear the Florida Competitive Workforce Act. Joining us now on Sunrise is the State Commissioner of Agriculture and Consumer Services, Nikki Freed. Welcome to the program, Nikki. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. So you're the head of the Democrats now in the state of Florida. That must be a heck of a thing for a young lady like you. Yeah, you know, it's, it's definitely not what I ran for, uh, for sure. Um, but it, it's been a definitely an interesting experience in getting to learn all of the people across the state that I may not have known before and, and trying to do a balance. You know, being able to be a cabinet member, you know, being the head of my department, which is my first responsibility, and then weighing the interest and the desires of the party. So that, that certainly is a challenge every day. I gotcha. Now, do you feel like this position is sort of unfair that, I mean, you were warning for agriculture commissioner and suddenly because Bill Nelson is knocked out, you're the top Democrat. It's, that's not really what you ran for. No, but I take that responsibility pretty seriously. And, you know, I, I definitely have, have grown into the position because, again, you know, on election night, we, we all first didn't know what was going to happen. And then I came out as the only one. Uh, and so it's been, a, it's been a learning curve and trying to figure out how to exactly make sure I'm doing my job, uh, but still be present for the Democrats across the state of Florida. 
Um, but yeah, so no, I, I definitely didn't sign up for this uh, for sure. Um, but it's been an amazing experience. And now, of course, we have the national elections and the presidential elections coming up. Uh, so my phone definitely rings off the hook with a lot of our presidential candidates looking for my endorsement and more importantly, my advice. How does a Democrat win the state of Florida? So I'm asked that probably weekly. Uh, and how do you how do you get over that hunt? You're about the only one that could answer that truthfully, too. Yes. Uh, how to get elected in Florida as a Democrat. Yeah, and, and I do. You know, I, I'm very upfront and honest, you know, that I have been a, a lifetime Democrat since I was probably even before I was, uh, I was 17 when the first time that you were able to in high school sign up to actually register to vote. Uh, but my dad is a diehard Republican. I think that on election day, he, I was the only Democrat he's ever voted for in his entire life. Uh, and my mom is a diehard Democrat. She was a teacher for 25 years. So I always was able to listen to both sides of arguments, always listen to policy arguments and, and come up to my own conclusions. And that's how I ran my campaign. And that's how I have always been somebody who wants to hear both sides of a situation and try to figure out what's in the best interest for our state. And we did that throughout the campaign. That's how I govern uh, and making sure that we are we are a center state and we're purple. And I know I got elected because of you know all the Democrats were there, but I also received a lot of NPA and a lot of Republican crossover vote. And so I take that very seriously, too, to recognize that I received a lot of support from others that weren't just on. Democrats. On your day-to-day -day work with the cabinet, all of whom are Republicans, except for you, do you find yourself <laughs> being a voice of dissent or are they including you in these things? Uh, you know, it really depends. You know, because I've known, you know, A.G. Moody and I went to undergrad and law school together, so we have known each other for, for 20 plus years. Uh, CFO Patronus and I have known each other since he was in the state house, uh, and the governor I'm just getting to know. So there's certainly a lot of things, like our, our trade mission to Israel, <clears throat> and a lot of things that we do have a similar focus on, such as environmental issues. The CFO and I put together a letter together uh, to the federal government and to the leadership in Congress and to the Senate asking them to move the fair banking for medical marijuana and for marijuana companies. Right. So there's a lot of things that we can do together and even our fight for disaster relief after Hurricane Michael that we can do together. But of course, you know, I also understand my role is to make sure that process is being followed, um, that everybody has an equal say in opportunities to apply for positions. And so I'm sometimes, you know, a little thorn in their side just to make sure government's running smoothly. Now, in your position as head of the Department of Agriculture, you have also become the de facto, well, cannabis queen. Is that a, a fair way of putting it? Uh, what, what's going I on? I think John Morgan has, has labeled that. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, he calls himself pot daddy. And I, I think that I've been uh, queen of cannabis or cannabis queen. I think that's what he has called is me. It? Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I did not know that. And I did not mean to steal from John Morgan. John, I didn't say it. So what is going on now at the Department of Agriculture with the hemp program? What's going on there? We are so excited. I mean, as we have traveled the entire state, even when I was campaigning on this issue, the amount of excitement that you are seeing from all of our farmers, from our small farmers, to our big farmers, to our minority farmers, um, to everything in between, uh, to people that want to get involved in the CBD space, the industrial side, uh, people who are thinking that you know hemp is going to be uh, something to save our waterways. And so really you're seeing an opportunity in environmentalism who understand that this is all biodegradable, better for the environment, uh, utilizing for plastics and styrofoam and concrete, you know, for hempcrete, releasing of less carbons. So really all better for the environment. So you're seeing a, a tremendous amount of excitement all across the state. Uh, so we are finalizing our rules. They should be out in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and then we do our rulemaking process as far as uh, hearings. And then we send it up to the USDA for, um, for them to take a look at it. And then we go and hopefully have seeds in the ground if not by the end of 2019, uh, first part of 2020. 
What's the potential for the hemp industry as far as financially? I have estimated about a 20 to $30 billion industry. When I first used that number during the primary, uh, everybody thought I was crazy because I was the only one talking about it. And now even as we see this excitement and this potential, and not just in Florida, but across the country, uh, an opportunity with all of our ports to export to the entire world, these new industrial products, I, I think that you're going to see that that number might be underestimated. And of course, it's not overnight. You know that That's something that's a five, 10-year projection. Um, that's making sure that we not only have the grow and the cultivation aspect, of in agriculture, but the manufacturing and the processing plants, uh, that is going to be a tremendous amount of new jobs uh, for our state. And it's an opportunity for a lot of minorities who are not able, and small businesses who are not able to get into the medical marijuana program, to really have an opportunity to get into the cannabis space. Do you think this might be a solution for the Panhandle, which is trying to figure out what to do with all those trees that were knocked down during Hurricane Michael? I do think this is an opportunity. Uh, I'm, you know, first and foremost, I would love for them to reforest and, and to put timber back in the ground because timber is the livelihood of that community. Uh, it really is something that's great for the environment because it doesn't need doesn't need soil. It doesn't need fertilization. It, it absorbs everything in the ground. It uh, doesn't need it as much, and it really is great for the ecosystem and for the general environment there. So my first priority is to give them all the resources and tools to actually reforest. Um, but you know, certainly hemp is a terrific alternative. Uh, really is going to be something that you're going to see. I mean, the interest is, is tremendous in the panhandle, and really we're seeing a lot of people. And it's an economic opportunity zone, too. So you're seeing a lot of investors looking at the panhandle as this is a great win-win, can invest dollars, have a, a good opportunity for those um, communities that are more rural in nature and need some of the financial boost. Of course, hemp gets all the headlines these days, but the Department of Agriculture has a lot of other issues going on. Uh, what's happening with the citrus greening? You know, that's been, you know, it's been devastating, you know, to watch, you know, and I've toured so many of the of the grows now and to see the devastation that's happened to citrus. This year, we have a projection to have an increase in the amount of, of, of production, um, but we're still seeing the citrus greening. And that's one of the reasons why we went to Israel is to talk to so many of the companies over there who are doing cutting edge research on not just trying to cure the greening, but different types of testing mechanisms, ways to do more precision on um, the, the fertilization and also for um, different type of chemicals to kill the citrus greening and earlier detection. So some of the companies were able to detect almost immediately so that you're not having to wait two or three years to see if the greening is actually impacted. So we're working on bringing all those companies and that technology over here. Um, but we have uh, starting a, a program to basically take the research that has been done for years now at, at IFAS and other institutions, putting that all together and letting our citrus growers kind of hodgepodge and pick what type of research they want to try into their own grows. Of course, in preparation for the upcoming session, agriculture has certain priorities. What are you looking for out of the lawmakers? We are, you know, we're, we have a very reasonable, sensible budget proposal. Um, some of our priorities is funding the hemp program. Uh, so that because we need, I mean, we're looking at potentially 3,000 applications plus. So that is just uh, intake purposes, our inspectors going out there and actually inspecting the plants, going to our food safety to make sure that if they're processing it, that that's all um, up to code. And then obviously, to make sure that any of the retail that are selling the hemp products are also regulated. Uh, so that's another priority is making sure that money is there. Uh, fire suppression as well as our forest. We saw what Especially happened. Especially after the panhandle. Yeah. Exactly. We have some of our equipment, our, our air ops, our veteran, uh, our Vietnam air 
Um, so that I think that the helicopters that are in the memorial are uh, younger than the ones that we have in our fleet. Uh, so those are some of the other things. We're also putting out some, some pretty good legislation that we're going to be working with legislators on, um, such as uh, dealing with our, our school nutrition program and food insecurity, which has been a top priority of mine. Uh, we potentially are putting together a huge energy package, uh, looking at how we need it in the state of Florida to move forward. Uh, consumer issues, you know, some of the things like fair rides, making sure that the inspections are in increased and the type of protocols that we look for, uh, as well as if, you know, we, we all know about the credit card scams and people stealing identities off of credit cards. But what people don't also understand is that you have a lot of information that's stored on your hotel cards, on your Apple Pay, on, you know, your bands when you go to Disney World. And right now there's a loophole in the law that unless your name is physically on those cards, then it's not considered identity theft. So we need to close that loophole to protect our consumers. Freed is stepping up her political game. Last week, she opposed her colleagues on the cabinet when they decided to hire a new chief judge for the Division of Administrative Hearings, whose chief qualification appears to be membership in the Federalist Society. She wrote to the governor and fellow cabinet members asking him to return to the clemency process adopted under Governor Charlie Crist back in 2007. Those rules restored civil rights to nonviolent ex-felons who had served their time, paid restitution to victims, and did not have further pending criminal charges. Former Governor Rick Scott reversed those rules, making it far more difficult and expensive for ex-felons to get their voting rights restored. By the way, Freed also took aim at Scott himself, now a U.S. Senator, for rejecting $70 million in federal funding to fight HIV. On the agenda today, the 2019 Human Trafficking Summit, hosted by Attorney General Ashley Moody, is being held in Orange County. The Department of Juvenile Justice, the Department of Children and Families, the Statewide Council on Human Trafficking, and the University of Central Florida are helping with the effort. That's at 830 at the Hyatt Regency, Orlando. The Space Florida Audit and Accountability Committee holds a conference call starting at 9 this morning to discuss the agency's fiscal budget for the 2020 budget year. State Representative Adam Hattersley of Riverview, a Democrat running for Congress next year, is holding a teacher town hall tonight to discuss education issues. It starts at 6.30 at Brandon High School. And the Florida Department of Environmental Protection will hold a meeting in Polk County to talk about a National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System draft renewal permit for the Mosaic Fertilizer Chemical Plant in Bartow. Yeah, it's the same company, the Mosaic Fertilizer, the world's largest phosphate mining company. They did agree to pay nearly $2 billion to settle a federal lawsuit over hazardous waste and cleanup operations at six Florida sites. And time now for the continuing adventures of Florida Man and his sidekick, Florida Woman. Detectives from the St. John's County Sheriff's Office and investigators at the Fire Marshal's Office are trying to identify a dead woman who was found inside a burning porta potty in St. Augustine. An autopsy is being conducted today, but authorities have not identified her or figured out how the fire started. The portable toilet was at a home that had been under construction for several months. A judge in Virginia has denied bond to a Florida man whose alleged plot to murder his wife went haywire this month when he was shot and paralyzed. 65-year-old Henry Herbig is accused of breaking into the Virginia Beach home of his estranged wife, attacking her and her daughter with a wrench. He ended up being shot in the spine by his stepdaughter during the attack and was left paralyzed. Investigators say they found a journal in Herbig's car that spelled out his plans to commit the murder. And a Florida woman who works as a bodybuilding model, yes, there really is such a thing, has been sentenced to five years in prison after faking a kidnapping attempt on her daughter and using phony Instagram accounts to terrorize her competitors. The Washington Post reports that 37-year-old Tammy Stefton of Holiday targeted a former business partner as well as rival models using 369 Instagram accounts with 18 different email addresses. 
Her plot failed when she made her 12-year-old daughter tell police that a Latino man had tried to kidnap her from her home and tried to frame her former business partner as a possible suspect. Stefan was charged with filing a false police report, fabricating physical evidence, tampering with a witness. She was also charged with stalking and cyberbullying after authorities uncovered all of her online threats. That's it for this edition of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg, reporting from Tallahassee for Florida Politics. Back tomorrow with an all-new episode.